0: The scripture passage we're going to be looking at this morning is found in the very last portion of the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 24, and we'll be reading verses 36 through the end of the chapter and the end of the book. Luke 24, beginning in verse 36, please give your full attention. This is God's inerrant word. As they, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And they said to him, why? He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still dis- while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Back in the late 1960s, there was a song that was a big hit on the radio and also was adopted as kind of an anthem for the love child hippie movement of the late 60s. The song was called Aquarius, and it came from the musical Hair. Let me read some of the lyrics to you. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. I just don't write songs like that anymore. (laughs) Sappy, silly, but very much reflective of the mindset, the philosophy of many, especially among younger adults in that day. Many of them believed genuinely that a new age was dawning at that time, the next stage of human evolution, a time of spiritual enlightenment and peace and love that would begin to permeate all aspects of society. Now, in hindsight, many years later, we look back and say, well, how's that working for you? Well, Timothy Leary was a psychiatrist, became famous as a speaker, and actually kind of a prophet of the movement. He advocated for using the principles of Eastern religions and psychedelic drugs like LSD in order to achieve this higher existence, this higher level of understanding and spirituality What's kind of humorous is that even the astrologers debunked this silly song, the Aquarius song. They said that Jupiter aligns with Mars several times a year and the moon is in the seventh house for two hours hours every day. So the song was uh, based on a false assumption about even astrology. Those New Age religions you know, what kind of developed out of that mindset were the new age religions of the 70s and 80s that were so popular that were really a blatant rejection of Western culture and specifically a rejection of Christianity. These poor souls that were looking for the dawning of a new age, we know, missed it by about 2,000 years. The event that signals the dawning of a truly new age is what's recorded for us here at the end of Luke's Gospel. The Bible speaks of this new age not as some great political movement, some great social movement. The Bible describes it as something you can't even see with your physical eyes in a, in a real sense. The Bible actually describes it as a hidden reality Jesus, in his teaching, compared it to the way yeast spreads through a lump of dough. You see the effect of it, but you can't actually see the kingdom. You can't see the new age that's dawned with the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that begins within those who trust in Christ, those who belong to Christ, those who have been born again. We began this series of sermons, the pastors, all the pastors and I began this series of sermons through the Gospel of Luke on December 1st, 2019. We've taken a few breaks here and there, but overall, we have been walking with Jesus for two and a half years through the Gospel according to Luke. That's almost as long as his earthly apostles walk with him. We've learned so much about Jesus, but we don't fully understand who Jesus was, and we certainly don't fully understand the meaning of his life, his death, and his resurrection until we understand what happens here at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Humanity is truly on the brink of a new age, a new power, a transformation of a fallen earth. This is the new age that the Bible calls the New Covenant. This last section seems at first, as you look at the portion that we read, if you read it quickly, it may read like it's all happened in one day. It starts on the day that Jesus is resurrected, and that's the first section from verses 36 to 43, and describes things that clearly happened on the day, the evening of the Sunday, the first day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead. But then verses 44 through 49, probably summarizes some of the key teachings of Jesus during the time between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And then, of course, verses 50 to 53 relay to us the account of him being ascended, being raised up into heaven bodily. We know from Acts chapter 1, which again was also written by Luke, the same author, in Acts 1, he says that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, the era of the new covenant, the dawning of the new age that has been established through his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Well, in, as we look at verse 36, what we see there is a gathering of those, the remnant, the, 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 the small beginnings of the early church. You have there the 11 disciples. Of course, Judas has been a gone apostate by this point, has committed suicide probably by this point. But you have the other 11 apostles, probably 10 were actually here in this setting because Later in John's Gospel, it says that Thomas wasn't there at the time. So you have the 10 apostles. You've got the two disciples that we looked at last week, the two disciples that weren't apostles, but they were followers of Christ, that Jesus, the risen Christ, met on the road to Emmaus and walked with them and taught them. And then it says they were there sharing their story. And then, of course, you have the women there, the women who were at the, the tomb. They found it empty. They saw the angels and Mary Magdalene, who actually saw the risen Jesus. Matter of fact, that's what they're talking about. They're they're extremely excited, but also extremely confused, trying to make sense of this. They're in process, they don't understand fully the implications of these stories. that are being told about having seen, literally seen a risen Lord Jesus Christ. Even Peter has, has given a report of seeing the risen Christ. And so this is the setting, and what John tells us in his gospel is that the room that they were in, in some room in the middle of Jerusalem somewhere, this room, the doors were locked. And John tells us that the doors were locked because of the fear of the Jews. Jesus had just been crucified, condemned and crucified. They were his followers. They genuinely feared for at least the possibility of imprisonment, if not feared for their lives. And so they're in a locked room trying to make sense of what they're hearing. And suddenly, the Lord Jesus Christ is standing right there in the midst of them. He says to them simply, peace to you. Now, what he says, when he says peace to you, that is the normal greeting that a Jew would say in that day, that a normal Jew would say to another Jew if you met them on the street. Peace to you. If you walked into their house, you'd say peace to you. It's the word shalom. Shalom in Hebrew and so what Jesus is doing he's giving the normal Jewish greeting it still is the normal Jewish greeting by the way but he fills it with powerful profound new meaning he is not just giving a casual greeting here he is making a proclamation peace to you I am risen peace to you I don't know if you've ever heard or done any kind of word study on the word shalom, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word for peace. But it does not mean an absence of conflict. It doesn't mean an absence of war. The word shalom, the word peace in English is a vastly inadequate English word to translate it because it is a huge weighty word. It has tons of meaning packed into it. Some English words we might use would be words like, yes, peace, but also harmony, wholeness, well being, perfection, prosperity. To wish somebody peace, to wish somebody shalom, would mean to wish them basically the conditions of the Garden of Eden. Being at peace with God and all of the tremendous universal blessings that come from being at peace with God. That's what you're wishing for the person. In other words, in the language of the 1960s, you're wishing them this new age, this new reality of perfection. And so Jesus is proclaiming to them, because I have suffered for you, because I have died for you, because I am raised from the dead for you, I give you peace. That's what he offers. No, really, I mean it. Peace to you is what he's saying. He's wishing them the blessings of the kingdom of God. When he started his ministry three years earlier, he and John the Baptist came announcing that the kingdom of God is in your midst, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was about to be established again the new age of the new covenant. So the old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is announcing that the new era has been inaugurated. What does it look like? Well, the first thing we notice from this interaction is that he has begun a new creation. In verse 37, it says that they were startled. They were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. I mean, that's their first knee-jerk reaction. Oh, he's a ghost. Or maybe they thought he was a vision, you know. And they're struggling to process what they've been told, and now what their eyes are seeing, is it real? And the fact, you can understand why they're startled, even though they're trying to believe that he's risen from the dead, he's standing there, you know, just suddenly, Somehow he was not hindered by the locked doors and he appeared in their midst. Now, some commentators would try to explain that away, you know, so he went and got the key and unlocked the door. I don't know what they come up with to try to explain it in humanistic terms, but we just saw last week when we were looking at the, the interactions he had with Cleopas and his friend, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, It says when he sat down and he broke the bread at their meal, they recognized him. And then what happened? He vanished from their sight. He can vanish at will and he can appear at will. Now, I don't know about you, but spending two and a half years with the gospel of Luke, I've gotten kind of frustrated with Luke not giving us any of the details about the things we're really curious about. How did he do that? What does that mean? What are the implications that he could disappear and appear at will in his resurrection body? Nobody knows. I don't know. And you're not going to find anybody who knows. The Bible doesn't explain those kind of details that we're curious about. What we need to know is that the resurrection body of Jesus Christ had properties that his body before his crucifixion did not have. What it testifies to us is that resurrection, his resurrection body was capable of things that his body before his crucifixion and resurrection did not possess. At the very least, he could disappear and appear at will. What do we take away from that? You, you have seen nothing yet when it comes to the resurrection. That's what we take away from it. You know, it's really important to Jesus that they understand that he was not just a vision. He was not just a spirit. He was not a ghost. He, he, notice how, to what an extent he goes to prove to them that his body has been resurrected. He says, he, you know, he says, touch me and see. Literally, in the original language, says, grasp me, take a hold of me, handle me, he says. So, you'll know that I'm um, flesh and bones. It's a real body. He says, See my hands and feet. Why does he say that? John's Gospel says, He says, Look at my side as well. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the wounds from his crucifixion. Now, again, Luke, come on, we're curious. Why in the world would his resurrection body still have wounds? I don't know, but I suspect it's so that they could be absolutely sure that this is the body that was crucified on the cross. Those wounds are left on his body as a testimony to his disciples that that's the same Lord that they, they worked with, they labored under, they listened to for three years. It's the same body that was crucified on the cross. Even though his body was glorified, and had properties and capabilities that it hadn't had before, it still bore the marks of his suffering for our sins. So in verse 41, you see there the inner turmoil of the disciples in that room. They're struggling to process this. It, the words that, that Luke uses are these. They still disbelieved for joy. What a strange combination of words. They disbelieved for joy. What I think that means is, They're standing there saying, this is too good to be true. I can't believe this. Their faith was very much in process. Still trying to wrestle with all the implications of what they were seeing based on what they had already heard was true. And so what does Jesus do? He asks them, what's for dinner? And they give him some broiled fish, and he eats a meal in front of them. I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian this morning. The Bible does not support vegetarianism. If, If fish is good enough for the resurrected Lord, it's good enough for me. I don't like fish. I don't eat fish. I think maybe what this passage says to me is, Maybe in the new heavens and new earth, I will like fish. Maybe that's, maybe that's my hope. See, Jesus is impressing upon his disciples what the Apostle John, in his first epistle, he begins, when Apostle John writes his first letter in the New Testament, he feels it's so important that those who are reading the letter understand that he was not only an eyewitness, but he was an eyewitness who grasped and handled and touched the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead body and soul. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spells out the significance for us in that great chapter on the resurrection. He calls Christ's resurrection there the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is why it's so important. Because Christ is the first fruits of all who believe in him and have died in faith. First fruits in Old Testament in the Old Testament writings, the first fruits were the first gleanings of the crop. When you went out to your field to take in the very first gathering from your crop, you were to take that to the temple and give it as a gift as a sacrifice to the Lord. It was called the first fruits. And the meaning of that was, Lord, everything I have ultimately belongs to you, but I give to you this this first gleanings of my crop. Because I trust in your word that you'll bring in the rest of it for me. You will meet my needs. You will provide. It's a a guarantee. This first, I'm giving the first fruits to you. It's what our tithing is. It's what observing the Lord's Day is for us. It's giving the first fruits of our week, the first fruits of our resources, saying, Lord, I trust you to provide what I need the rest of the week for the rest of my income. And so the first fruits, that's what Jesus' resurrection is. It's a guarantee that God is going to provide our resurrection, our resurrection body, that our salvation incorporates not just the saving of our soul from some kind of spiritual suffering and torment and hell forever, but the salvation of our body as well. See, the world does not understand this, but we are both body and soul. When it says we are made in the Lord's image, it means that he has imparted upon us not just our soul, he has imparted upon us a body that is able to interact with our soul, to reflect the very nature of God. And if you are only, and this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 if you're in heaven, if you die today, you go to heaven before the Lord returns, you are half saved. Your soul is perfected, your soul is safe and secure with the Lord but your body rests until he comes again when your soul, your perfected soul, will be put back together with a perfected, glorified body for the rest of eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the other thing that Christ's resurrection represents. He's the first fruits of our resurrection, but he's also the first fruits of a totally renewed creation. Now, I marvel at that. I'm someone who loves God's creation. I love walking up, especially this time of year. God's creation is in much of its glory right now. But it pales in comparison to what is coming. The glorified version of what we've seen. This is a fallen, cursed creation. Christ's resurrection guarantees that when he comes again, you and I will be made perfect in body and soul, but all of creation will be made what it was originally intended to be and beyond. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's our hope. Paul says that our, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, going, again, going back to that great chapter, you want to study the resurrection, go to 1 Corinthians 15. And in that chapter, he compares our current bodies, these fallen, weak, sin-ravaged, uh, disease-ravaged bodies we live in now, that these are like seeds compared to what our future resurrection bodies are going to be like. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, beginning in... Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I don't know what a spiritual body is. All I know based on what Paul teaches is it's a glorified version of this physical body. And it's capable of things. It's like his glorious body. And think about it. Jesus disappeared and appeared at will. I don't know about you, but I'm an old Star Trek fan. And I can't wait to be able to teleport anywhere around the universe I want to go. I don't know. Maybe resurrection bodies can fly. Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't know what they're capable of. For some reason, the Lord has not revealed to us. We just know it's going to be, you know, imagine. Go ahead. Imagine what you want your resurrection body to be like. What I can guarantee you is it's going to be better than that. I guarantee you. A bodily resurrection was the beginning of a new creation. That's what his resurrection first told his disciples. The second thing is that his new disciples would receive a new understanding of God's word they would receive a new understanding of what God had already revealed that was true in his word. Look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus repeats what he had told Colopas and his friend in Emmaus, when they were in Emmaus. He says to these disciples, now this group, he says that the Old Testament scriptures point to him. Matter of fact, the Old Testament scriptures demanded that what he did in dying and being raised from the dead was had to be fulfilled he's how many times has he said this in the gospel of luke these prophecies must be fulfilled because everything is written about me He says everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled laws prophet law prophets and psalms that's the three divisions of the old testament all of the old testament all that god has revealed already through the prophets of the old testament must be fulfilled and has been fulfilled in christ all of it ultimately points to him And this is where I want to make this point again because this is so important in what Jesus teaches his disciples in the last days of his his life before the crucifixion and during the 40 days between his crucifixion and his ascension. Their faith and trust in him had to be based upon the Word of God and the Word of God alone because they could not trust their feelings, they could not trust their experiences. What they could trust, ultimately, is the Word of God. Everything that they experienced, and they experienced some amazing things, all of it was to confirm what the Word of God had already revealed. Your faith must be based upon the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is inerrant. The Word of God is fully trustworthy, and that is what your faith is based in. Your feelings, your experience, those things are good. They can confirm what you believe. They can add strength to what you believe. But your belief is not based upon your feelings or your experiences. Your faith is based upon what Jesus has said is true in his word. And that's what you see here. He points them again back to his word. Notice how he keeps doing that. Go to the word. And it says there, like he did for Cleopas and his friend, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, the lights turned on. They knew the scriptures. They were good Jewish disciples. They knew the scriptures, but now all the dots start connecting. Once you understand Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the scriptures, and once you understand Jesus Christ, all scriptures fit together from beginning to end, and that's what happened. The dots all connected. They began to understand what Paul says. When Paul describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Base your faith in what the scriptures have revealed to be true. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and the prophecies in Christ, that's the foundation of our faith. Peter alludes to this in chapter 1 of his second epistle. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But he doesn't say to base our faith in that fact that there were eyewitnesses. What they are to base their faith in is the word of God. Notice what he says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Yes, it assures our faith that those who testified of his resurrection were eyewitnesses who handled him, but those things only affirm what the word of God has revealed to be true. We have the scriptures more fully confirmed, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So not only did the disciples' minds... Not only were they open to understand more fully how the priesthood of the Old Testament, the priests themselves, the sacrifices, the exodus, the Moses, David, the prophets, how all these things pointed forward to Christ. They were shadows of the coming Christ and his work of salvation. But there's another truth that kind of gets unlocked in this new era of the new covenant. And that's how the mission was to go to all nations. And Jesus alludes to that when he says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There would be an overwhelming expansion of the mission of God's people. Now, it is true, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find many places where God said to Israel, I have set you up to be a light on a hill. And he made many prophetic statements about how one day all nations would come to hear the word of God, where God's people were. There are prophecies of that. There are promises of that. There are actually judgments that are carried out against the Jews because they were not a light on the hill. Matter of fact, they obscured the light. They put their light under a basket in many ways. But what we see with the new era of the new covenant is that now the word is going to go forth powerfully to all nations, that offer of shalom that we talked about, that peace with God and all that flows from it, it's going to be offered to all types of people, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. The New Testament was going to be written from this point forward for until the, the time of the apostles was finished. The New Testament would be written to give a much deeper more profound understanding of who Christ is and what his saving work was all about. Because of the New Testament, we have a much deeper, much more more profound understanding of our hope, of justification by faith, of sanctification, of the church, of the atonement. These are things we understand better because of the revelation that came through the apostles in the New Testament. But one of the things that was what Paul calls a mystery under the Old Covenant that is now fully revealed is that this is no longer going to be a Jewish nation proclaiming from a distance the light of the truth of the gospel. This is going to be a gospel that is sent into every tribe, nation, and permeate every people group in the world. Daniel chapter 7. The Old Testament doesn't give a lot of prophecy about the ascension of Christ, But there's one clear place that talks about the ascension of Christ. And I love the fact that in that prophecy of Christ's ascension, which was given through the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, that it actually alludes to the fact that his ascension would signal the extent of his dominion to all nations. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7, verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, people sometimes misunderstand that this is talking about the second coming of Christ. No, it's not about the second coming of Christ. Notice that the one like a son of man, the Messiah, is not coming through the clouds to earth. He's coming through the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He's coming to heaven. He's coming to the throne of the Father. And notice what it says. He came to the ancient days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That kingdom was inaugurated and established when Christ ascended to his throne in heaven. And that kingdom, the kingdom of God, this new era, this powerful kingdom, this hidden but powerful kingdom has been here since Christ ascended to his throne in heaven. And it is extending. And man, what amazing thing. If you've ever studied the history of missions, if you want some affirmation and encouragement to your faith, study the history of missions, how God took this cowardly, scared trembling group of disbelieving but joyful disciples in a locked upper room and within a generation spread it to the entire Roman Empire and over the last two thousand years it has reached every corner of the earth that's the new era that's the kingdom of God how how was this tiny group going to accomplish this well this is the third new thing that we see in this passage and that's the new power The new power promised by Christ for his church. In verses 48 and 49, notice how their mission doesn't begin immediately. The first thing they're told to do is wait. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. As Luke recorded this same teaching in Acts chapter 1, he says, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus had promised to them in the upper room at the time of the Last Supper before he went to the cross. He said, I will ask the Father in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. But I want to make sure you don't miss the fact that he made them wait. And I think there could be a lot of purposes for that. But one, I think, of the main purposes is, is that that's how we ought to approach ministry in general. Wait for the Spirit. Don't rush ahead in the flesh, realizing that anything you do to spread this message of repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ cannot be effective unless the Holy Spirit is working ahead of you, around you, behind you, empowering you to do it. And so many things that we do in ministry are done in the strength of the flesh. And then we wonder why we get weak and weary and fail. Wait for the Spirit, he says. And then on the day of Pentecost, several days later, the Holy Spirit descended upon the beginnings of the early church and the Great Commission takes off. The kingdom of God has been established from the day of the resurrection and the day of Pentecost on. We are in a new era. We are in the kingdom of God. It is hidden like yeast in the dough, but it is spreading aggressively to every part of the dough. This new covenant that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 31 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it talks about it in this way. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What I want you to notice about that familiar promise of the coming new covenant in the time of Christ is that Everything promised there actually was experienced to a degree by Old Testament saints. Moses, David, Elijah, they all knew the Lord. They all were born again. They were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could believe, so that they could follow the Lord, so that they could do the will of the Lord. They had the work of the Spirit in their lives, but what the new covenant is and what that promise is is that there's going to be a greater indwelling in the new covenant era. There's going to be a more comprehensive experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the work of the church has been so effective for 2,000 years, is the Holy Spirit has spread this gospel profoundly to every corner of the earth. And we have the privilege, with the revelation of God's word being complete, and the greater indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to serve Christ and glorify him in our lives. Our next sermon series is going to be called The Covenant of Grace, and we're going to be looking at the scriptures that unveil the the progressive, slow unveiling of the covenant of grace through the different covenants in scripture. And we're going to see how those covenants all tie scripture together because the covenant leading up to the new covenant means that all scripture leads up to Christ and his fulfillment of the new covenant promises. We can tell as we look at the end of the Gospel of Luke You know, when you're watching a movie, you can tell if that movie's setting up a sequel. If you're watching a Marvel movie, you know it's setting up a sequel. (laughs) But you can always tell if the movie is leaving some loose ends, you know, some untied up storylines, you know that it's setting things up for a sequel. And that's exactly what we have here at the end of Luke. There's a lot of loose ends here, a lot of intriguing things revealed. But he wants you to go to volume two, the sequel, the book of Acts. That's what... Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and that's where you get the rest of the story of this new era, this kingdom of God in being uh, infiltrating the entire Roman Empire and beyond as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. The true new age has been with us for 2,000 years, and it's still going strong. It's been here since the ascension of the risen Christ who is thrown in heaven this new age of the kingdom of God of the new covenant isn't a religion, it's not a philosophy, it's not a social movement, and it's not a political movement. It's a divine power. It's a divine power that changes sinners, dead sinners like you and me into living, breathing, loving disciples and citizens of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, "The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed." Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then when he ascended to his throne in heaven, he said to the church, you are the light of the world. Because you have my spirit within you. You have my truth in your hands. By the power of the spirit and by the power of the truth that I have imparted to you, go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. That's your mission. You are inadequate for it, but the Spirit and the Word are able. Our study of the Gospel according to Luke began with the announcement of the angels when Jesus was born. Do you remember what they said? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Shalom, among those with whom he is pleased. Our study this morning ends with the risen Christ appearing to his disciples and saying, Peace to you. Shalom to you. Harmony, wholeness, perfection, prosperity, well-being for all eternity. Peace with God and all that it entails. As he said to his disciples, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, of this new era of peace. Let me conclude by reading to you a passage that's familiar to you, but when you think of it in light of everything we've talked about from the end of the Gospel of Luke, hear what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, and I'll close with this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Peace to you. Let's pray. Father, so much hope in that passage, and yet so much of a mandate and a mission to be placed upon. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which we have failed in the past. We ask for you to renew us by your grace and to equip us and empower us to be more faithful in the future. May this church and each one of us as individuals Fulfill that instruction, that command of our Lord to be the light of the world with the light of Christ. And Father, thank you that we serve a risen Lord who reigns forever over all. We pray in Christ's name, amen.